before I begin today, I, I want to ask you guys a favor. Uh, many of you got the email I sent out this week regarding the uh, tragedy that took place in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, it was Monday, it was after last week's Sunday, that I found out that one of the, the children there was the grandchild of someone I knew. And so, someone many of, many of the people from this church knew. He was the U.S. Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship, Dan Bacon. And so, under Dan's leadership, uh, Christine and I went out to Thailand, uh, the Driscolls went to Japan, the Weems went to Japan... Uh, Joe and Donna Hobbs were at this church at the time. They went out to Japan. Linda Phillips, she was Linda Yusi at the time, went out to Taiwan. And so all of us knew him from this church really well. And he had just in the last year moved to Newtown to be with his son, Joel, his daughter-in-law, Joanne, and his two grandchildren, Charlotte, who was killed. Uh, she was a kindergartner. And uh, Guy, who uh, was a fourth grader, I believe, and he, he was okay. So the, the, the positive thing, I think, to take from this is, is Dan and Lindy are, are godly people. They are, had great influence on Christine and I. Uh, he was a professor of mine in seminary. He was a guest lecturer, and I had him for a class and had him into my home, and uh, then he became our sort of boss as we joined OMF, and he's a godly man, and he will have a, he will have a godly impact there in this uh, difficult time. So the favor I'm asking of us is certainly to continue to pray for, I mean, it's, it's more, it becomes more personal. You know, it's out there and you don't know names. And, and, and now I think I'd just like to bring it home for us and pray for Dan and Lindy that they would have the strength to be that, that, uh, that witness, that comfort for both uh, their, their children, their grandson, and the community. And just pray for comfort for the, fa- the Bacon family. And, and one thing that I would also ask is out there as we leave today, there's a table set up and it has a couple cards, uh, just condolence cards, one to Joel and Joanne, the parents of Charlotte Bacon, Joel, Joanne, and Guy, Guy's uh, the brother, and one to Dan and Lindy, her grandparents. And so if you want, just want to write a little note of encouragement, let them know that we at Bridges are praying for them uh, here in California. And so... We'll send those out. So I would ask you to do that. And so let me, let me just pray now uh, for them and, and lead us into our time before the Lord. Father God, Lord, it's, it's difficult. Tragedy is hard. Death is hard. Death of a child, death of children is uh, sometimes uncomprehensible. Lord, but you have plans. You're sovereign. We'll see today that you're Lord. You're Lord over death. Lord, you are working and you, you're doing things that we cannot think of, that we cannot imagine. Lord, and I praise you that Dan and Lindy are, are in this place, and I pray for them. I pray that you would strengthen them at the core of their being as they're suffering and, and as they're in pain, that you would strengthen them and they would be a witness that, uh, to you and to, to bring you glory and honor, even in this tragic situation. We put this into your hands, and, and we pray that you would continue to work, that you would continue to move, that you would continue to comfort, that you would continue to be the God who heals the God who brings peace and comfort and love in this terrible situation. In Christ's name, amen. The Christmas story is is very powerful, wouldn't you say? Last night that was illustrated to me. Christine and I uh, uh, hosted her family Christmas party. And one of the things we do at her family Christmas party is we play a lot of games. 
And one of the problems with Christina's family is they're mostly teachers. And teachers complain a lot about students that don't listen and, and talk, talk, talk. But they're worse, I think. And so I'm trying to lead, I'm the game leader, and I'm trying to lead these games, and I've got talking here and talking here and getting a little frustrated. And so really throughout the whole night, there wasn't much uh, silent time. But there was one time. And so this game that I invented, I'm the game inventor, uh, it was really a game to form teams for another game. We needed six people on three teams. There was about eight, there was 20 of us counting Christine and I, and so we needed three teams of six. Christine and I weren't playing, we were the hosts. And so what I did is I took the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and I divided it into three parts, and I put them on three different sheets of paper, and I cut each paper into six different pieces, and gave each person one piece, and I said, find the people with your piece of paper, with your section of the Gospel of Luke. And so they did that. They did it rather quickly. They figured it out. They got the numbers. Oh, I got, because I left the verse numbers in there. I got one. I got two. And they got together. And they had on the floor or on table, they had it all puzzled together. You know, I think it was Luke 1, Luke 2, 1 through 20. And so the first uh, the first set had one through seven, and then, and then so on. And so, and then I said, okay, you got these puzzles together. Now let's, let's read these things that we puzzled together. And so a person from each group read through Luke chapter 2 and Christina's family Christmas party, and there was silence. It was completely silent. The power of uh, God's word, the power of the Christmas story. It, it came to an end, the final verse, and it was still silent. People were, what do we do with that? You know, and then somebody said, that was great, and, and we went on from there. But the, the power of God's word, the power of Christmas, the Christmas story, and this is Christmas Sunday, and you can tell that by the fact that I'm wearing a tie. If you're a visitor, this is a twice-a-year occurrence, Christmas and Easter, and so I hope you enjoy it, <laughs> if, that's, if that's something you do. We come to our final Advent message in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. During this Advent season, we've been asking Advent, the arrival, the coming of Jesus. During this season, we've been asking the question, who is this Jesus? We've been examining the very nature of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in God's word. We began with verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, we saw a call to follow Christ. He not only came to save us, but he came to be an example for us that we might share his mind, that we might think like he thinks, that we might be like Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the the rest goes on to say, this is how Jesus is, and this is how you can be. Verse 6, we saw the divinity of Jesus. He's God. But we also saw that while he remained fully God, he willingly set aside his rights as God. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 6 says. Then in verse 7, we saw the humanity of Jesus. He, he is, he became man. Jesus willingly and humbly became one of us. He was born in our likeness, but made himself nothing, verse 7 says, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And last week, we looked at verse 8. We saw that Jesus is our one and only Savior, That Jesus not only humbled himself by becoming human, 
but he humbled himself by taking on the sins of humanity, dying in our place, that we might be rescued, that we might be saved from sin, that we might be saved from death. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've seen that Jesus Christ, this child born in this stable, laid in a manger over 2,000 years ago, this child whose birth we celebrate every, every year, every December 25th, is set aside for the celebration of, of his coming, his arrival, his birth. The child Jesus existed from all eternity as God. And at that, at that point in time, he willingly became man, fully God and fully man. Why? That he might willingly, emphasizing willingly, no one was coercing him, willingly suffer and die, be spat upon and beaten on the cross, death on the cross, that he might save us, that he might become our Savior. But that's not the end of the story. This early Christian hymn, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, is a, many believe is an early Christian hymn, continues... It continues on by describing what takes place after Jesus has come to earth, after he's become man and done his work of salvation. And that brings us to our passage for today, verses 9 through 11. Notice that even before we get to verse 9, I just want you to notice the first word there, that it begins with the word therefore, therefore God. Verses 9 through 11 will, will describe what God does what God does to and for Jesus. And the therefore points to what has gone before. It points to the reason why God's going to do what we're going to read today. Specifically, it points to what we've studied over the past three weeks. Therefore, because Jesus existed from eternity past to eternity future as God, because Jesus humbly set aside his divine rights for a time and became fully man, Because Jesus humbly went to the cross, dying for the sins of humanity. Therefore, now listen to verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These three verses are are a proclamation. They're a proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and what he did, God declares that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus' lordship was at the core of the, the early church. In the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter makes this very clear. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Throughout the New Testament, the lordship of Christ is proclaimed. He's referred to as Lord about 750 different times. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? You know, we don't, we don't use that you know, I've been, I watched the little mini-series, maybe some of you watched it, what's it called, I always want to say downtown, Downton Abbey, anybody seen that? Wow, 
you guys are much better at not watching TV than I am. Anyway, it's about the turn of the century, England, uh, this Downton Abbey is this house with a lord and a lady and servants, and so there's my lord, my lord, my lord. The, the, the British know about lords and, and what that means. We as Americans, we don't, we don't get that. We don't get the lord. So I want this morning just to understand a little bit more about this idea of being lord. That's what we want to look at this morning. What does it mean that this baby born in a manger would one day be exalted as Lord over everything? We Christians say the word all the time. We say that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Our Lord and Savior. But do we understand what that means? And more importantly, do we live in a way that demonstrates we know what that means? So today I want us to look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11, as well as some other scripture. I want us to see what it means that Jesus is Lord. So let's go back to verse 9. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In verse 11 we'll see that that name that God bestowed upon him is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And in verse 9 we learned that that being Lord means at first that you're highly exalted by God. The phrase God highly exalted him literally means God super exalted him or super eminently exalted him. It's, it's, it's way up there. It's big. God exalted him to the highest place, to the utmost position. Now, now we need to think about this. We need to go back a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. We, we learned that Jesus was and continues to be fully God. And isn't God already highly exalted? Isn't he already Lord of all? We know that there's nothing greater than God. There's nothing more exa- exalted than God. There's nothing with nothing, no one with more authority than God. God cannot be exalted higher than he already is. He's at the peak of exaltation. God has no room for improvement or advancement. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to go for God. He's at the top. So how can Jesus, at a point in time, be highly exalted to a position of lordship overall? Well, think about it. Think about the, the following week. We talked about Jesus as... Yes, Jesus is fully man, but remember, he became fully man. He has, continues to have, had and has, he got a human nature. He became a man, a real man. Sometimes we forget that. We think, we think, and sometimes we think it was just that, that, that short 33-year period that he was a man. Jesus is a man forevermore. He took on the nature. He became a man He died as a man. He was resurrected as a man. He ascended to heaven as a man. He took on humanity at a point in time. But his human nature will be with him forever. He is and will be fully God and fully man throughout all of eternity. And it's this human nature of Jesus that's highly exalted by God. It's the human nature of Jesus that's declared Lord over all. In a sense, God is bringing his human nature up up to where his divine nature always had been. 
As God, Jesus always was and always will be highly exalted. And as man, God, at a point in time when his work was completed on earth, highly exalted him. And God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God gave Jesus the man, the name, the position of Lord. Jesus, his, God, his nature as God already had that. But God gave it to him. This name is, highly, is a highly exalted name. Is the Greek word kurios, the, the, the word for Lord. It means supreme in authority. When the Old Testament was, you know, the Old Testament was written in quiz. Anybody? You guys know this. Hebrew. Hebrew, a little Aramaic. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, though, there was a word, they had to translate the Hebrew words into Greek, right? And so one of the words was the the name for God, the title for God. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And in Greek, it's kurios. They use the, the word kurios. Jesus is, is being equated with the Lord God of the Old Testament. Jesus is highly exalted as Lord, just as God is exalted as Lord throughout the Old Testament. Therefore, the praise that belongs to the Most High God of the Old Testament now belongs to Jesus. So let's just look at a couple of passages. What I want us to do with, with this as we look at these passages, it's not busy work. Sometimes we think we're doing busy work. It's not busy work. What I want us to do is get a feel. You know, Chad talked about that heart. You know, we get our head knowledge. I want us to get a heart. I want us to get a heart for what it means that Jesus is Lord. And I think these Old Testament passages, as they speak of the Lord of the Old Testament, and now we know that's Jesus as well, gives us that feel. Let's begin with Psalm chapter 95, verse 3 through 6. For the Lord is great, is a great God, and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, the Lord our maker. What does it mean for Jesus to be exalted as Lord? It means that he's exalted above all else. He alone is the most high. There's none higher. And he shares his lordship with no one. The Lord is not just great among many gods. He's in a class by himself. Jesus is in a class by himself. He's the Lord not just over the earth, but he's literally the Lord over everything in creation. He is our maker. He's exalted as the creator of all things. I mean, it just makes sense. If you're the creator of all things, you should be exalted. You should have control. You should be the ruler and Lord over all things. Let's go to Psalm 103, 19 through 22. The Lord has established his throne in heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus is the Lord. He's exalted, not just above creation, but he's exalted in the heavens, above all the angels. Look at Psalm 113, 1-6. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on heavens and the earth? All the heavens praise Jesus. Not just the heavens, though. All the nations give glory and honor and praise to the Lord. So I hope we see, and this is throughout the Psalms. I just picked a few examples. The Psalms give us a picture of the Lord being exalted above the heavens. Exalted above the world. Exalted above creation. Exalted above the nations above all the rulers of the earth. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's super exaltation. Let me show you one final Old Testament verse in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. See how the Lord is mentioned here. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. For who told, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not the Lord? Now listen, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. There's no other God beside me. That means Jesus. Jesus is righteous God and Savior. There's none beside him. Okay, now, so I hope that that gives us a picture. And, And that's just, you know, you could read through the Old Testament and over and over again, the exaltation of the Lord, the Lord God. And this is what needs to come into our minds and our hearts when we picture the word Lord, when we hear that title. He's exalted above all powers in heavens and earth, all nations, all rulers of the earth. And he's zealous for his name. That's the picture we hear when we hear the word Lord. So when we get to the Christmas story, specifically Luke chapter 2, verse 11, and the angelic host comes and says... For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we get the magnitude of that proclamation. All that's behind it. The baby born in this major is the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of heavens. He's the Lord of nations. He's the Lord of all the heavenly beings. He's the Lord over everything, everywhere. He's exalted above all gods, little g. He's therefore the object of all of our worship. He's therefore worthy of our praise. He is Christ, the Lord. That's the identity of that baby in the manger. Christ, the Lord. He's rightly exalted to his utmost position. Jesus is Lord means he is highly exalted. And as Lord in his highly exalted state, he holds all power and all authority. Verse 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember the word Lord in Greek means supreme in authority. This was the word that was used to describe a master or an owner. An owner of slaves was called Lord. What an amazing turn of events we see here. Just in these, in these, these, these short verses in five, 5 through 11. He who, took, he who became and took the, the form of a servant, the form of a slave, now becomes the owner of all things. The picture here is one of who has absolute power, is an absolute authority over 
all things. That's what it means to be Lord. And that's the picture we're seeing of Christ. We saw that he was exalted by God. Now we see that he has absolute power and authority. Jesus said it of himself. Just prior to his physical ascension into heaven, before his departure, when he was giving the great commission, go make disciples of all nations, he said in verse 18 of Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So let me ask you a question. How much authority does Jesus have? All. Is there any, anything outside of all? You know, they, they say, you know, you should never say never and you should never say all. You should, but Jesus can say that because he means it. He knows what he's talking about. When he says never, when he says all, he has all authority. There's no authority he doesn't have. Now, I want us to think about this authority and how it affects us on, on two, different, two different levels. This authority, this power and authority. First of all, last week... And this, is where we, and this is where we really focus in on, oftentimes, on Jesus' power and authority, because it's really important. And we saw it last week, that Jesus is Savior. He has the power and authority to save us from sin and save us to eternal life with him. He alone is the Lord over sin and death and life. He's in control. No one else in all of history can claim to be Lord over sin. Jesus not only claimed... See, see he, he's Lord over sin and death. And he proved it by living a sinless life and rising from the dead. No one else in all of history can make the claim to be Lord over sin. Is there anyone in this room who's conquered sin completely? Raise your hand and come take my place. Because you would be... Well, you don't exist. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... There's no one who's conquered sin completely. Is there anyone in all of history, any of our greatest religious teachers in the history of the world, not one of them can claim to be Lord over sin. All have fallen to sin, except Christ. Can anyone claim to be Lord, not just over sin, but over death? Who's conquered death apart from Jesus? Some came back. Some were raised from the death to die again. Jesus came back and died no more. Absolutely no one has conquered death apart from Jesus. He alone has the power, the authority to save us from sin and death. We read a couple weeks ago, we'll read again, Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's just speaking that this is Jesus, we have flesh and blood, so Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death, as one of us, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. Just so you know, in case uh, the devil's real, and he has power over death, until Jesus took it away from him at the cross. Jesus took on humanity so that he might destroy him who holds power of death, the power of death. Death is a difficult, it's the, it's the, the thing that, that we view as the, the most horrific thing, death. And I know at Christmas, many, for many families, it's painful. It's a painful time, especially when you remember loved ones, loved ones who've passed away, loved ones who you share memories with, loved ones who you have great family Christmas memories of. Christmas will never be the same for the families of, 
of Newton, Newtown, Connecticut. The pain of death is present and it's real. But I want to remind us, want to let us know that Christ, that in Christ, we have the one who's Lord over even death. Our greatest fear, well, next to public speaking, that's what I hear, is death. He has all authority over death. Therefore, if you know him, you need not fear death. Who else can save us from sin but one, the one who lived a sinless life? Who else can look to give us, give you power over death but the one who conquered death? Who else can give you that new life? That new life in the presence of God. Who else could do it? He alone has the authority and the power to save. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? If he didn't have the authority and power to save, we wouldn't be saved. He has the authority and power, and he reaches down and he gives it as a free gift. And we praise him for that. But he not only has the power to save, and this is where we need to focus today, he alone has the power to rule. He is the owner. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. That's the picture, the truth we have of Jesus Christ here in Scripture. He is the ruler. Paul writes of Jesus in Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the Lord over all. He has the power and authority to save and the power and the authority to rule. Now I want us to pause here for a second and, and I want us to think about something. I want us to think about a dangerous tendency that we have. That we have, that, that I have, that our culture certainly has. And, and, I, and when I say culture, I mean our Christian culture. Because the world's not thinking about these things, but our Christian culture. We have a dangerous tendency to separate these two. We separate his power to save from his power, his right, his authority to rule. And when we do, we, be, we begin to say and we begin to believe things that are untrue. We begin to say and believe things that aren't biblical. Things that can confuse and deceive us. Things that stop us from ever really knowing the true Jesus Christ at all. This is serious. This is serious stuff. And we need to be very clear. We need to be clear about who Jesus, who this Jesus really is. And what that means for you and I. There are two common and dangerous, let's call them misconceptions about Jesus. The first is illustrated by, by statements like this. Well, I've accepted, and, and let, me, let me say, maybe you've never said this, but sometimes we live like it. Maybe you've never said this, but in your heart, this is how you're thinking, this is how you're living. Here, here it is. Well, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I've not surrendered to him as my Lord. Jesus has saved me from my sins, but he's not the Lord of my day-to-day life. We separate his power to save from his power, his authority to rule. I like the saving, but not the ruling. So we pray a prayer, we sign a card, and we say, I've asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. 
then we live our lives far from his authority, far from his rule. Our lives look like everyone else in the world. There's no difference. There's no fruit of Christ in our lives. He's not the Lord, but we call him our Savior. Now, I want to be pretty clear here about this. This is not an option that the Bible gives. It's not in the book. Jesus is Savior and Lord, not Savior or Lord. If you look throughout the book of Acts, for example, 92 times you'll see Jesus referred to as Lord. Two times he's referred to as Savior. We can't separate who Jesus is. We can't can't dissect him. We can't cut him in half. We can't use him as our Savior and refuse him as our Lord. He is Lord. That's who he is. We can't separate his saving work from his lordship, his rule in our lives. We can't accept him as Savior if we don't accept him as Lord. We have to accept him. So I hope this clears up that first misconception that you can't separate Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. The second misconception is illustrated by statements like this. I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Now, we might say that, and we might not really mean what it actually says, but let, let, me, let, me, look, let me tell you what I mean. Think about that for a second. You've decided, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Well, you really didn't have a choice in the matter. He is the Lord. He is Lord regardless of what you do or what you think about him. You and I don't have the privilege of defining who Jesus is or determining who he is. He is Lord. It's a fact. It's truth. The question is not, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? He is the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of every life. He's the Lord of all creation. The question is, have you submitted your life to his lordship? He's the Lord of your life, whether you know it or not. In the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, have you bowed a knee to his lordship? Have you confessed with your tongue that Christ is Lord? Because the truth of scripture is one day, this scripture right here, verses 10 and 11, one day every single knee will bow. One day every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The real question, the only question for us, is will you bow now or will you bow when it's too late? When I was in high school, I attended Calvary Chapel Riverside, now Harvest Christian Fellowship. And I'll never forget, you know, you have pastors. I've had a number of pastors that have been pastors in my life. And there are just certain things that stick. Maybe there's, I hope some things stick. From, But there, the one thing that, that I'll never forget, the, how Greg Laurie addressed this passage. He put it this way. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Either you will say with joy in your heart, with hands lifted up, Jesus is Lord. I would bow, but I'm wearing a suit. Bowing your knee, or you'll one day say with regret, with bitterness, with head down, Jesus is Lord. That's the decision. I mean, you're going to acknowledge it. You can acknowledge it now, or you can acknowledge it later. That's the decision that each one of us face. Have you, have I bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
Not have I accepted him. Not have I invited him into my heart. Not have I prayed a prayer. Not have I believed in Christ and and, and bought into the Christmas message. Even the demons believe the Christmas message. The demons know that Jesus is God. The demons know that Jesus became man. The demons know that Jesus is the Savior. And the demons know that Jesus is the Lord. But they've not bowed the knee to his lordship. So what about you? Have you in your life bowed your knee to his lordship? Surrendered your life over to him? Bowed the knee? When you bow the knee, that's a a sign of surrender. I give up. You're in control now. I remember when I I made that decision, that, that decision to submit to his lordship. I was 18 years old. I'd been a Christian, quote unquote, for five years. I'd walked the aisle. I'd prayed the prayer. From age 13, I probably did it a number of times. For some reason, you just keep doing it. They keep asking and you keep walking. But I haven't, hadn't given him control of my life. I still had my plans. Even as a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, I had my plans. I knew what I was going to do. But that night when I was 18, over 30 years ago, in, in Kansas City, and I've told this story many times, it's like this turning point in my life, at this Campus Crusade conference, in response to a message on lordship by Billy Graham, I bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. I'm sorry Billy Graham's not here, but you still today can bow your knee to Jesus Christ. At that point I said in my heart, I said out loud, that I would relinquish control of my life. No longer am I going to pursue my plans irregardless of what you say. I would submit to his authority over my life. Now, I'm not saying that from that point until today, I've always submitted in everything. I do. I know you find this hard. I do continue. Because sin, you know what sin is? Sin is when you don't submit. We continue to not submit. The question is, are you on a path of submission? And, and that day I got on that path of submission where I could, I could possibly submit. I said, Lord, you are the Lord. You're in control And he's faithful, you know, because when he's your Lord and you step out of line, he's there to, you made me your Lord. I'm going to, I'm not going to let you rest until you get back on that path of submission. And he's faithful in that way. I came to understand the truth that Jesus is the Lord of my life, whether I know it or not. I came to understand and submit to his rule and right, his right and rule to reign. I don't know if uh, if Billy quoted it that night, but 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 has become, has helped me to understand my position, my place before Jesus Christ. This isn't in your notes, I mean the verse reference, but jot it down. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body, and, that, and that's not just, some people use this for, so you can exercise, and I'm okay with that, but it's really your life. Your life is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I do not belong to me. I belong to him. You do not belong to you. This is hard for us Americans to hear. You do not belong to you. You belong to God. He is your Lord because he is your Savior. He bought you. And you can't separate the two. If he bought you as your Savior, he is your Lord. 
Now, my submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ led me the next day to commit to become a missionary. It led me down a a path of missions. It led me to Thailand as a missionary. It led me back here. It led me to become the pastor of this church. And I don't know what what submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will mean to you. It may mean, I hope it does mean for some, going to the mission field, going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ where it's never been heard. That's not up to me. And it's not up to you. It's up to the Lord. What will he do with your life if you give it to him? He'll do way more than you can ever ask or think, and that's a promise. I don't know what he'll do in your life, but here's what I do know. If you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, two things at least will take place. The first is spelled out in 1 Corinthians 6.20, which we read, so glorify God in your body. And at the end of Philippians chapter 2.11, to the glory of God the Father... All of this, all of what we've been talking about over the last four weeks, both in the life of Jesus Christ and in our lives as we follow his example, are for the glory of God. As Jesus submitted to the Father, the Father was glorified. As we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord, God receives glory. God doesn't become more glorious. He receives glory. His glory is revealed in our lives. In fact, and let me be clear about this. Our first, uh, what do you call those things? Core value. It's on the front of your bulletin, is to bring God glory. So we, we here at this church think that's important, that God is glorified. It's our first and, and foremost priority. And let me say this. If he will not be glorified in our lives unless we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not going to be glorified until you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord. In your life, he won't be glorified. So God will receive glory as we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. As you grow in relationship with him, as you obey him, as you demonstrate his love to this world, you are glorifying God. But something else will happen also. And you wonder, well, how can I do that? What does that mean? What does that look like? I have no power to do that. You don't, I don't. But listen, as you submit, and only if you submit, to the Lordship of Christ, He is faithful to work in your heart and in your life and in your mind, in your abilities. He is faithful to transform you into the person that you were created to be. Just a couple of verses later, Philippians 2.13, Paul writes to those who submit to Christ, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And let me say this, his good pleasure is good for you. He's sovereign, he's in control, he knows what's best for you. For his good pleasure. God works in those who submit to his lordship. If you struggle with the fact that your life hasn't changed as much as you think it should since you became a Christian... You know, I'm, I struggle over and over again. You might want to ask yourself, have you truly submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Who's in charge of your life? You or Jesus? If it's you, there will be no change. If it's Christ, he promises to work his good pleasure in your life. That's the core question. And it's the core question upon which our, our eternity is based. There's no more important question or decision that you'll ever make. So I want to, as we conclude here, invite and urge and plead and 
beg for the first time. You've never bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to do that this very day for your own good, for God's glory and for your good. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have bowed your knee to him, I, I want to I give you an opportunity to reflect over what that means. What, it mean, what does it mean for him to be the Lord of your life? To remember, sometimes we bow and then we forget. We, we continue to take back control. He's the Lord. He's in control. And really, maybe the application for us who bowed in the past, I bowed, can't even count the years, I'm getting old, 31 years ago, you know, is to daily, when I get up, first thing I need to do, and I do this sometimes, is get out of bed and hit the floor on my knees and say, today, I bow my knee to you. It's a one-time thing that he becomes Lord, but it's a daily act of submission. Maybe we need to reflect on that. Ask ourselves, are we submitting to him on a daily basis, continually, even today? And I want to invite you, if you've, if you've never submitted, if you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to do that for the first time. As we conclude the service this morning, I'd like to pray. And as I pray, I challenge you to, to bow your knee to Jesus, to bow your knee. You can do it physically if you want, but certainly in your heart, to bow your knee to Jesus this morning, giving him complete and total all He has all authority. Submit to that authority completely today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your arrival and all that that meant for us. Lord, that it meant that we would be saved from our sins, that we would be saved from death, that we would be saved unto eternal life, Father. But it also means that we now have one we can call Lord, we can submit to because you know what's best for us. Lord, we bless you for that. Now, if you'd like to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I would ask you to pray this prayer after me. In your heart, it's not the words that matter, it's your heart that matters. Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. You are the God, the ruler, the owner of my life. And I need you to forgive me of my sins. And I'm not just going to believe in you. I'm going to trust you with all of my life. Thank you for what you've done for me. Knowing that these can't be separated, I I now bow my knee to you as Lord and Savior. I give my life completely to you. It is yours to do with as you will. Amen.